everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. For us, we are a multi-brand retailer. So what's important to us is lifetime value and retention and how fast do you break even on the cost to acquire a customer. How do you build a successful e-commerce business that has attracted nearly 5 million visitors in a month? For Jerry Home, it took a few failures and a couple of stumbles out of the gate with his co-founders before finding the winning combination of users, demand, and products all in one. Jerry is a co-founder and the executive chairman of Touch of Modern, a members-only e-commerce website and app focused on selling lifestyle products, fashion, and accessories to men. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Jerry takes us through his early struggles and how he found the secret sauce to making his e-commerce platform one of the most popular among male shoppers. Plus, he explains what metrics other e-commerce pros should be looking at and gives some advice to other entrepreneurs. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey everyone, this is Stephanie, your host of Up Next in Commerce. Today, we have Jerry Hum, the co-founder and executive chairman of Touch of Modern. Jerry, how's it going? Pretty good, how are you? Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, how's it, uh, how's it going? So you're in a loft right now, right? In SF, living the quarantine life? Yeah, we've been in it for a little longer than most other folks. Yeah, so what's your day look like with being sheltered in place? And I think San Francisco's even stricter than Palo Alto, where you guys weren't allowed to do even more than we are. Yeah, we actually started preparing for it a little bit earlier, actually, you know, just as it was making news headlines and most companies were still... Uh, up and running, we were planning kind of contingencies and, you know, fallback planning and seeing how work from home would be like if we had to do it. Luckily, we came up with a plan like just in time and we actually went into it before even California started making statements about it. So I think we are kind of in a pretty decent groove in terms of keeping the business running smoothly and and all that. Good. In terms of a day-to-day I'm actually surprised as to maybe like how engaged people have remained, mm-hmm. you know, being that we have to do it all through technology. And, it, you know, I actually started thinking about it, like, why is it that work from home is almost a little bit easier now than it was in the past? And I think it's because when it's the only option, then, you know, you just do it, right? You have to make it work. <laughs> yeah. It's not like, you know, if half the office is doing one thing and then, you know, or not half the office, if like most the office is at work and if few people are working from home, then it's actually more difficult because the people in the office are like, oh, let's wait for that person to get in or, or something. Yep. But if this is the only way that everyone's communicating, 
then it's actually fairly smooth. I obviously, you know, everything takes a little bit more time and all that. And so yep. the day is actually longer than usual, but yeah, all things considered, I think it's working pretty well. Good. Yeah. Hopefully it'll come to a close soon. How have you all handled, I mean, has there been any struggles? Like I'm imagining taking photos of your products and things like that. Like it, that's probably a very in-person type of thing that multiple people have perspectives on and all want to help. How are you handling things like that with your business that seem yeah, pretty hard to do virtually? Yeah. So luckily some of our folks have setups at home. Good. Yeah. Because usually photographers, this is not just a job. It's also a passion and a, and yeah. a hobby. So we've been able to, you know, make do uh, obviously at a reduced capacity. Yeah. Well, good. Okay. So maybe that's a good point to uh, dive into what is Touch of Modern, if you were to explain it to the listeners and give us some background. Touch of Modern is the, uh, the only shopping destination that men visit daily. And we offer a curated mix of you know, remarkable products across all categories. And that changes every day. This could be anything from you know, a flamethrower you can strap to your wrist or the newest exercise gadget or anything in between. Are women allowed? Because I was on there and I was like, I want to buy some of this stuff. I would buy maybe not a flamethrower, yeah. but there was some good stuff on there that I'm like, I want this. Of course, women are allowed. Um, <laughs> this is just kind of more... A little bit of our differentiator because most e-commerce sites out there are catered toward women. Yeah. You know, we're not the only one, but one of the few that, um, that really cater to men. Got it. Yeah. It looks awesome. A lot of the products I was ready to hit by right away. How did you come to create the idea of Touch of Modern? And I think I read it was third time's a charm that you had done three other things or two other things before that until you got to Touch of Modern. What was that like? What was that journey like? Yeah. So I'll give you the, um, the long story here, maybe. Good. Four founders, guys from New York. And the first business actually was a peer-to-peer experience marketplace. And this is kind of similar to what Airbnb has now. Obviously, they built that on top of their existing business, but mm-hmm. you know, we were trying to start that from scratch at the time. And that was extremely difficult because you're telling folks to you know, change their lifestyle, right? If you need to suddenly, you know, offer a cooking class, you know, that's not a you know easy thing to do if you don't have the customers for it, right? Mm-hmm. Or the time for it. And then we're telling customers to come on this platform and book stuff. But if you don't have the activities, then what is there to book? Yeah. So it becomes like this chicken and egg problem. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it came out of our own need because you know we're guys in New York. You're kind of looking for interesting things to do all the time. You know you're stuck in the city, right? And so the second business was called Raven. Well, the first one was called Skara. If I mentioned that, second one was called Raven, and that was a slight variation on the first. And that was we took out half of the equation because you realized double-sided marketplace super hard, right? Yep. So we started offering activities that already existed. This could be like hang gliding. This could be skydiving. This could also be day at the spa, right? Mm-hmm. And we also layered on a recommendation algorithm where you could like stuff and based on your activity, we would offer you a daily feed of different activities and things that were new to discover in your area. And we got a lot of engagement out of that. People found really cool things. And if you look at my feed versus somebody else's, it would be really different based on what we like. And when you looked at it, it was like, oh, it's a pretty accurate reflection of things I'm interested in and my hobbies and such, right? And that was difficult because people would then discover stuff, but then they wouldn't actually book it with us. They would just call directly. Oh. Mm-hmm. And what we learned from that was, well, we need 
reason for people to transact, right? And we need maybe um, something to make us relevant for, for right now. And so the second iteration of that business was actually uh, Raven Events, where we built a mobile app in the early days of not the iPhone, but when apps really started getting a bit more complicated, better than just the kind of beer pouring app and yep. you know those things, right? And so we used geofencing to create this thing where if you went within a certain perimeter of something going on, we would tell you about it, it would alert you and be like, hey, like, you know, street fair over here or, you know, something over there. Mm-hmm. And that was really what was, there wasn't another app like that, at least that we know of at the time that was doing that. And also at the time, a lot of folks were moving to San Francisco, yep. probably even more so than they are today. And ton of messages from people saying, wow, you're really like helping me discover the city. Every weekend we pull this out and, you know, see what's going on, especially because San Francisco is the type of city that always has something going on. Yeah. Like on the side streets, you're like, there's a whole festival going on right now. (laughs) Yeah. So that was really cool. But again, a lot of these things were free. So it wasn't like, you know, there was a a real business model. There was just a ton of engagement. Mm -hmm. It seems like you guys were kind of ahead of your time with that, because even when I'm hearing about that now, I'm like, oh, if you would have kept going with that one, Airbnb would have probably acquired you. Oh, if you kept going with the geofencing thing, like Google would acquired you because I worked for Google Maps before this. And still, they're still trying to figure out how to show you where the festivals are, where the farmers markets are, like based on your location. So maybe you guys are just ahead of your time with everything. Maybe. I mean, that would be the uh, (laughs) positive way to look at it. And so I think the lesson we learned from that was being incredibly hard to scale location-based things mm-hmm. because you could sell out all the tickets to this one show or, you know, a certain percentage of it, but there's only limited margin and you're restricted by the location. And therefore we couldn't justify the business mechanics that were necessary to make that sustainable. We didn't raise a ton of money, right? And so mm-hmm. this was going to get like, where it wasn't like, hey, we're going to get to a billion people and then it's going to work. Yeah. And so um, we were like, what were we good at? What were we not good at? We were really good at getting people engaged, really good at discovery aspect of things. We just needed something more scalable to be, you know, the, the thing that we feature and realized that, hey, products, you know, you get scale of products, right? National distribution and all that. Yep. There's real margin there because that's kind of built into the model that way it already exists. And we had always kind of liked products just as, you know, the people that we were, but we didn't want to touch it because we didn't want to deal with like real world problems of moving things around, shipping. Yeah, logistics. Yeah, logistics, right? But after going through the struggles of the first two businesses, we realized that these things are not really, this is not rocket science, right? This has been done. So we started thinking about what kind of a unique angle we could take at it. I remember we were in the living room and we were talking about speakers for some reason and, you know, who made the best speakers and you know, Dennis has had his idea, John had his idea. And then Steven, who's the real audiophile, was like, no, these, these are the best speakers. And he knew all these brands that we didn't even know about. Like, you know, we were, we knew the mass market brands, but not the kind of stuff that he was into. Mm-hmm. And so he had all this knowledge, we're like, okay, you, you know, you win that debate, right? And we realized that we all had this thing that we geek out on, right? You know, John was really into cooking and he had these really expensive knives that he would keep in this knife roll that he would have to, you know, take out and show us. And Dennis was really into, outdoor uh, activities and all the gear that's associated with that. I used to be an architect uh, when I was in New York. So I spent way too much money on furniture. Mm-hmm. And so that was my thing, right? And so everyone has had our own thing. And so we realized like no, no one out there was really catering to this desire, whatever it was that 
that ties all these things together, right? And so we just started sourcing things that we thought were cool. And hey, like if we think it's cool, other people are going to think it's cool too, right? And we, it wasn't like a men thing. It wasn't even necessarily a discovery thing. It was just, you know, these were the things that we thought were cool. Mm-hmm. And I think through that process, right away, it kind of hit in a way that the other two businesses did not hit at all in two years, right? Where day one, we started getting real transactions and buying activity, right? How did you get buying on day one? I'm like, how did people even find your website or know where to go? So um, we did not even have a website on the very first day. Actually, what happened was Dennis, who ran marketing, would just start running ads. Facebook or what kind of ads? Yeah. Early, early days of Facebook too. And I think a lot of what we did now can't be exactly replicated, but there's probably some learnings to take from it. And so we basically just collected emails and say, hey, there's this thing that's like coming soon, right? I think, you know, I don't probably remember years ago, there was tons of these types of things that were just coming soon. And you're like, oh, what's coming soon? Yeah, that was the strategy back then of just like, just put up a landing page and see if people want that fake product that you could create. I remember reading books where they would suggest that. And I'm like, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is, you know, more or less what we did. I mean, we were creating it, you know, yeah. not talking about like, let's just run ads and see if people like it. Like we were just building it at the time, at the same time we were running ads against it. Mm -hmm. And basically we had an idea of what the metrics needed to look like in order for a business to work, right? And we just made assumptions down the whole funnel, right? If if we can acquire an email for this much, and if they, you know, this percent of folks could convert and, you know, we assume a certain order value and certain repeat rate, then this is what our business would look like, right? Mm -hmm. And no data for anything outside of what it would cost to acquire an email. Mm-hmm. And basically, we knew the cost of that. Then we started sourcing products and building the website behind it. And then we just went down the funnel, confirmed our assumptions. Uh, and sometimes they were better and sometimes they were just different. But um, we kind of just proved it out from the, from the top down. Got it. That's really cool. And has it always been a members-only platform? Or has there ever been a time where people could just go to the website, the app, and just see the products without inputting their email? Yeah, so we require folks to input the email for you know the upfront reason that we are talking to, and this is also maybe one of our differentiators, is that we are not, you know, a clearance channel per se. You know, we talk to vendors who have products that are you know new to market, right? And so they may have endeavors to go to traditional retail or, or something else. And they may not want their prices shown necessarily to everybody. Okay, cool. So when I was looking at your catalog and just seeing everything that you have, how do you mm-hmm. go about curating something like that? I mean, it sounds easy in the early days of like, oh, so-and-so like knives. So he went, you know, he pulled in his yeah. favorite knives. But like, I saw how many products you had on the page. Maybe it's like, how many a day do you release? It's about 300 a day. And like, how do you find 300, even a month, cool products that are so unique like that and keep up the level of quality that's on there? Yeah. So we have a team of about you know, 30 or so folks on the sourcing and buying team, and they're out just looking for what's cool and, and unique. And obviously, you know, we have our standards and things that we look for, and they just go out and, and try to find things that meet those standards. And they also try to find things that are you know, that we've just never seen or, or heard of before, right? And then we bring it back, goes through an approval process, and then you know, we put it up and run it. It's fairly simple. 
Cool. Does it still go through you to approve every single product? Not every single product, but uh, in the early days it was. And now we have a team of folks that, that do it. Got it. And you also have an app that people can buy from. Is it the same functionality? Does the website mimic the app? Or how did you think about uh, expanding to mobile? It's mostly the same functionality. We expanded to mobile fairly early on. Like I said, our previous companies, we were already experimenting with mobile back then. Uh, I don't think we had them with Scara, but Raven, we definitely did. And it was mm-hmm. a you know, core part of it. And so we went to mobile uh, pretty early on. And I don't think we knew this per se, but it was interesting because men tend to be more comfortable buying on mobile too. Mm-hmm. And be that influence part of our strategy and you know, vice versa. But it seems to actually be the more popular platform for us, both in terms of actual use engagement and revenue as well. Okay. And do you see different customer profiles when it comes to the mobile users versus the website users? And do you cater to them differently based on that or personalize things different? Um, no, the experiences are pretty congruent on both sides. The mobile users tend to have a little bit of a higher value, but that could also be because you kind of have to self-select into mobile. Mm-hmm. You know, like you go on the website and then you're like, hey, if you're really into it, then you go on the app, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of hard to say, you know, what's, what causes what. Got it. Very cool. So in the early days, you were doing Facebook ads. And I think I read that you were doing TV ads as well at a certain point. How has your marketing strategy evolved since you started? Yeah. So in the early days of Facebook, it was like the wild, wild west, right? You know, the big brands weren't really on it. And so it was a great time for companies like us. And this is why I say a lot of it, you know, can't really be replicated today, you know, exactly the same way we did it back then. And so, um, you know, when a lot of the competition started moving in, in order to compete, we kept broadening our category and just, I mean, just becoming a stronger business, right? And so it'd be a lot harder to start with just a handful of products like the same way we did. I mean, when we started, I think we launched 12 products and that was it. It was like 12, like individual products, not 12 vendors, just 12 yeah. territory things you could buy, right? And uh, that was enough to make it work. Probably impossible now to do that. But, you know, as the business grew, we could support, you know, more channels. We went into Google and then eventually uh, got to the size where we can actually start experimenting with TV. I think also TV has evolved over time as well because of digital advertising, because so many brands see the benefits of digital advertising. You can track things and kind of go after more specific audiences mm-hmm. that TV now kind of has changed to have some of those properties as well. And so we use them both kind of together and then they enhance each other. You know, you can tell when if you're spending too much on TV and not enough on digital, then, you know, TV starts to suffer. If you spend too much on digital, not enough on TV, then the opposite happens. Got it. How do you find that ROI of the campaign to then decide, okay, let's scale back on TV and increase mobile ads or something? Like what metrics are you looking for? So we actually have the exact same metrics on TV that, as we do on digital, right? And this is just cost acquired customer and lifetime value and all that. And the way we track it is now you can know exactly when your spot airs. Basically, we have a baseline of traffic that we know that, hey, if nothing's airing, this is what our organic traffic looks like, right? And so when we air a spot, we can see that spike. And, you know, we do a probabilistic analysis to say this much of the traffic following that airing is you know, probably due to TV. Got it. Okay, very cool. Uh, so when it comes to metrics, when you think about e-commerce, what metrics do you think are most important to keep track of? Or how do you define success when it comes to e-commerce? Yeah, there's a ton of stuff. I mean, it really depends a lot on what kind of product you're selling, right? And I'll give you two extremes. 
one extreme is like us. And for us, we are a multi-brand retailer, right? And so we, you can buy a number of things and also we change our selection every day. So you can keep coming back, keep buying different things, right? And so what's important to us is uh, lifetime value and retention, right? And how fast do you break even on the cost to acquire a customer? So the, at the end of the day, that's kind of like the most basic thing for any kind of company in our space. But the products that you're selling may influence how you look at it, right? If you're selling cars or mattresses or something you just don't buy very often, mm-hmm. then you may think about it very differently because it's just not feasible to think that the retention rate is going to be nearly you know, what ours is, right? Or it's not going to at least not be frequent enough for you to, um, to be able to plan your marketing spend around. Mm-hmm. Got it. How do you keep your customers, how do you retain them and keep them coming back versus acquiring new customers? How do you think about that mix? I mean, you always have to acquire new customers. You know, I think yeah. churn is just like a natural part of business. Like, you, you know, you can't deny that it's there, you know, like yep. companies should be great, but there's going to be some folks that it's not for, right? It's not like a hundred percent of your folks are going to stay with you forever. And even the folks that do like eventually they, they may change tastes or, or things, things like that may happen. And so in terms of splits, I think that it also varies on performance for us. You know, for us, we care about a kind of payback on the spend that we're doing mm-hmm. and depending on where we see better performances, kind of where we'll weight it. And also it depends seasonally because, you know, obviously for retailers, holiday season and all that, you may want to do one thing versus another, but that's going to be really specific to the kind of company that you're running. Yeah. So when it comes to uh, changes in spending pattern, what have you seen from everything with COVID-19 going on? Like what kind of differences? I saw you have a, uh, I think a stay at home section or something similar like that, shelter yeah. in place on your website. How have you seen things change since that started? People's priorities definitely change very quickly. And luckily for us, because we can change our assortment every day, we're actually able to adapt really quickly. Mm-hmm. We got that store from, from when we said we were going to do it to when it was up. It was a matter of the morning to that afternoon. That's impressive. How do you line up all the vendors? I mean, to me, I would think that's like a long process of picking the vendors and picking out the product and making sure they can ship enough depending on demand. How did you get all that lined up so quickly? The thing is, when this first started happening, especially, I mean, it's a two to agree now still, it seemed as if time had just sped up suddenly. Yeah. The things that would take an entire quarter could happen now in like a day. Right? Yeah, it has to. Yeah, like everyone was wondering uh, what was going to be different. A lot of our vendors, you know, suddenly their retail channels dried up, right? Or they had to move things around. And so we just called them up and said, hey, this is what we're doing. Obviously, most of the folks that were on there day one were folks we've worked with already mm-hmm. in the past. Or coincidentally, we were talking to and, hey, like this, this fits kind of thing, right? But it was tapping existing relationships um, in parallel. The you know the design and engineering teams were building out the store. We were using some existing infrastructure that um, that we could uh, repurpose and, and reskin for the store. And so it, uh, I mean, it was an amazing feat. I didn't think we were going to do it in uh, in a day, but it happened. Yeah. And are you changing that catalog like each yeah, day or week or as well? Mm-hmm. How do you think now your company is going to change based on like now you know how quick things can move if it has to? Do you think yeah. that your internal policies and 
Um, all that stuff could change going forward based on how quickly you can see things go through and maybe seeing things aren't a priority or approvals for certain things might not be as high priority as you thought they were. What's your view on that? Yeah, um, I mean, in terms of uh, policies first, I think in more so than anything, it was like validation of a lot of the policies that we had in place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was confirmation that we could move quickly because we always thought we could. I think that's always been our our thing. You know, one of the questions that people always ask is how does a company that sells premium products, how does that respond in a recession, right? And this isn't a recession, but it's it's a time when people's priorities are going to shift maybe away from things that were you know, seen as more frivolous to things that are now you know, more essential, right? Mm-hmm. For us, we always said, well, you know, we can respond quickly, but it's never been proven. And now, you know, it's been proven to an extent that we can respond quickly and we can move to things that are more essential. It's still essential with a twist, right? It's still yeah. within our, our brand and it's going to bring a bit of uniqueness and delight into, into people's lives that are staying at home. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's validation that the model can move quickly the way we thought and that our brand can extend to the different categories and, you know, address people's needs as they, as they change. Mm -hmm. Do you think these buying behaviors are going to last for a while? And if so, are you shifting maybe your thoughts on, you know, what touch of modern looks like in 2025, 2030, is it kind of having you rethink things a bit? I think that people's buying behaviors will change because this is not like, I don't think it's going to go back exactly the way it was, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. People are going to be much more, I, I mean, hope they're going to be more health conscious. I hope that this introduces some good habits, right? I think people are going to take a bit of time to reflect and think about, you know, things like self-improvement that maybe they didn't have the time to do before. Cause I think some people staying home are going to realize like, Hey, like there's this new hobby that I've always been wanting to do that I can do now, or Maybe I should drink less or something like, you know, whatever it is that, that yeah. you discover when they change their lifestyle, that there's actually parts of this that are good that, that they can, you know, take away and, and keep with them. Mm-hmm. Except for the drinking less thing. I think that one's going the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, other, how some people are. are doing. Happy hour time keeps like getting earlier and earlier. And I'm like, I need to set up rules around this house. Oh my gosh, it's only like two o'clock. What am I doing? <laughs> well, I mean, another, you know, silver lining here is that I think people now have actually seen how quickly the environment can actually improve just with it in a short period of time, right? Because in the past, I think it always seemed like this insurmountable thing to certain folks where it's like, yeah, like we can recycle and do this, but we've been doing that for a long time and nothing has really changed. It's actually, it's been getting worse, right? Yep. And then suddenly you take a step back and it's like, hey, things, things change quickly, right? Yeah. So maybe there, you know, it's not as impossible as we thought. We just have to be deliberate about you know, the habits that we have and maybe, um, you know, where we spend our energy. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes a little shakeup like that can be good for people and the economy and good things could come from it, yeah. even though there's a lot of bad going on as well. I think, yeah, it depends where you're looking, I guess. So when it comes to outside of touch of modern and more of like the e-commerce industry as a whole, what disruptions do you think are coming, especially with COVID-19 now? And we're seeing some of that already happening, but what are you betting on in the future is coming? Well, I'm going to bet probably more on e-commerce, right? Yeah. I think people are going to build habits from shopping at home that are not going to go away, right? I think certain things that maybe people used to only buy in person are like, hey, I can buy this at home. It's actually a pretty decent experience. Probably going to keep that habit Mm -hmm. um, even after this. And I think people are going to maybe focus a little bit more on preparedness for things than they have in the past. 
I think human nature is that you never think that these outlier type of situations can happen, but they do, you know, that once, yeah. in, like once in a century, oh, I've never think about it. But of course, it lives a long time, right? Like you may see a once in a century thing in your life. Like that's probably going to happen for a lot of people, right? And this is, a, this is that thing for us. Yeah, agree. It seems like there's going to be a lot of new people coming online who never were online before. Mm-hmm. And it brings me to a point I saw on your website that I liked a lot is kind of meeting a consumer where they're at. So there's two things I saw on your website that I thought would be perfect for, you know, a new consumer who doesn't normally buy online. The first one was you have a toggle button on your homepage that says view as, and you're able to actually change how you view products mm-hmm. on the page, depending on what you prefer. Yeah, I- so I thought that was genius. Any insight behind that or any thoughts when you were creating that? Because I haven't seen many websites allow you to toggle that view to what you prefer. Yeah, it's um, it's just like a preference thing, right? You know, our experience on the landing page is we just drop you right into our offering, right? It's not like a landing page where you then click in and search and, you know, do all this other stuff. Mostly e-commerce is catered to search, right? You just go on a page and automatically the thing is you type in what you're looking for, right? That's not really our experience. It's there, but it's kind of secondary. It's mostly a browse and kind of meander your way through our offering. Mm-hmm. So um, we just thought we'll let people, you know, maybe pick the way they want to meander, right? Mm-hmm. How do people meander through 300 things? Because I was going through and I wanted to look at all of them, but after a little while, I'm like, oh, this is too many. And I kind of wish maybe like, what did I see? Uh, there was a screen that extended your screen. So you have like your MacBook or something and then you plug in yeah. a little cord and you have an extension of your screen, which is awesome. Yeah. I'm like, I, that should have been shown to me first because that's what, you know, I would definitely, I want to buy that right now. Whereas what was the second thing? It was showing maybe like an expensive bottle of wine, which I'm like, oh, push that down some because I'm not fancy like that. <laughs> How do you think about, you know, helping people get through those products each day? Well, you know, I think your first time experience is going to be a little bit different than your second or your third time. About almost half of our users, and not talking about customers, but just people that visit, will actually come back at least once a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so if you're doing that, and then, you know, our most frequent visitors are coming back every single day, then it's not as hard to browse through everything. Because you can browse through it, and then you'll hit a point where, okay, now I'm looking at yesterday's stuff, right? And so if you keep up with it every day, then it's not actually ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know, for your first time, you're looking at, you know, all the days that have accumulated in the past five days and then certain events will also extend beyond that. So I think the first time experience is like, wow, this is a ton of stuff. And also because you probably want to like click through every single thing, right? Yeah. But you know, after a while you're probably just, you know, looking for the things that catch your eye. So you're just gonna scan and be like, okay, that's really cool. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. But you're not necessarily gonna check out every single thing, right? Yeah. Also, uh, on the mobile app, the scrolling experience is just much slicker and smoother too. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, you might just browse there. A lot of folks also will tell us that it's just something that they peruse through when they're, you know, waiting for something or commercial break or something like that. The second thing I saw that I really liked, um, which I also haven't seen, maybe I'm just not on enough websites, I don't know, but I was looking through an about shipping section and it showed a visual of what does your shipping status mean? And it yeah, just yeah. it showed everything from like, we place our PO and then it goes to the supplier. And here's what it means if you see, you know, I don't know the whole, I can't remember the whole layout, but I thought that was genius showing it in a visual format. And I'm sure that probably brings down a lot of uh, customer support emails, but tell me how you all are thinking about, you know, giving that transparency to the customer yeah. to hopefully prevent a million emails of, hey, where's my product? 
this is a, another product of our business model or kind of what differentiates us a bit. And as like, you know, we sell across all categories, right? Meaning that we have to be able to accommodate all the categories. So it's not like, you know, a company that just sells furniture ships one way. A company that just sells clothing ships another way, right? And so their customers go there expecting a certain experience. A company that sells everything needs to ship all the different ways, right? And so a customer might not know exactly what this shipping process is going to look like when you buy something because they may not realize. I mean, it's obvious now when I talk about it, but if your company goes on a site, you're going to expect shipping experience to be generally consistent. But for us, it's like, you know, we're going to ship furniture differently than we're going to ship clothing differently than we're going to ship, you know, this cup, right? Yep. And so um, I think for us, it's just more like informing the customer, this is what's going to happen. Uh, this is what it's going to look like. And this is what the different steps mean. For us, we've found that more so than anything, they just want to know what's going on and that, that it's moving and that things are happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about when it comes to relaying the value of the product? Like, how do you convince someone that something is, you know, really good? Because I don't think I saw reviews on the website, yeah. unless I miss yeah. them. Like, that's usually the first thing I look for is, is it five stars? You know, I want to see if someone has the same kind of experience that I'm looking for. How do you tell someone something's valuable without that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we do is educating the customer, right? Because a lot of these things, you know, they never heard of, they don't, they didn't know it exists. I wish I could say that we do an awesome job at it and we provide all these reviews and stuff. And we vet the product, you know, we'll go and look at the reviews and we'll test the product and all that. But it does take a leap of faith on the first purchase and then maybe a learned trust after some time that like, you know, we, we've done the research because if you go and research these products, you're going to find that, you know, they're, they're pretty highly regarded. Yeah. Which I think actually might be the model that's headed is just show me one or two people like at your company that I trust to review a product. And I trust them because a lot of reviews, I mean, at least on other places, marketplaces and things like that, Mm -hmm. they're paid reviews. And so you go through and you're like, well, I can't trust 90% of these anyways. So I think it is kind of shifting towards just give me the one person that I can trust or the one company that I can trust to curate something for me. And I know if it's coming from them, it's going to be quality and good. Are there any big transformations that are going to be on your plate after the environment kind of calms down or any big projects that you plan on uh, starting or changing within, you know, your strategy? Yeah. Um, we're working on shipping things a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. The reason being that, you know, a lot of our products do take a little bit longer because, you know, we have these various models that we work with mm-hmm. and we found that uh, when we can ship things more quickly, people are generally way more happy and more likely to come back and, and purchase. How can you speed up the shipping for when it's a bunch of different I'm guessing like retailers who all have their own different practices. How can you kind of know that you can speed that up and make it all pretty uniform? Consign the product, right? So they'll house it in our warehouse and we essentially act as their distribution center. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Tell me a little bit about that. Do you have to buy warehouses in different parts of California or how's that model set up? Right now, our warehouse actually has a good amount of space and we've actually developed our distribution system to fit with our model, right? Which is that we kind of run things run things in these short spurts, mm-hmm. right? And what's cool about that is that things come in and they go out really quickly. So we're not sitting on mountains of inventory. I mean, we're, we're nearly inventoryless. We're very inventory light. And so we don't actually require that much space to run a lot of products. Mm-hmm. So right now, uh, for the foreseeable feature, it's to keep it within our distribution center. It's a long-winded way of saying it. <laughs> Okay, got it. How did you learn to do that? When I even think about 
shipping products to a warehouse and making sure everything goes well. How did you yeah. Yeah, learn best practices around all that? Yeah, this is interesting because when we first started, we were shipping our own products from day one. From your house or from where? From the house. Uh, That's awesome. Tons of boxes in the living room. And then when the FedEx guy came, the first day we just piled it in the lobby and our neighbors got really pissed at us for doing that. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so the second day we knew when the person was coming and we just did like brigade style where we just passed packages from our living room. Basically, we had our four founders there mm-hmm. and we would just pass it down, bucket brigade style down the stairs, you know, as quickly as the guy could load it into the truck. Oh my gosh. And then uh, first day we finally opened the office, we, you know, set aside half of it for fulfillment. And the reason why we did that was because we realized that our model is just very different than a traditional pick and pack model, which is what most 3PLs was called third-party logistics providers. At least back then, they were mostly doing pick and pack Mm -hmm. type operations. And it didn't really fit our model. And we realized that at a certain scale, we'd have to bring it in house. Mm -hmm. And it's better to learn it now than than to try to take it in when it's already at scale and have huge disruptions in, you know, customer experience. So basically we just started doing it at a really small scale and built our mm-hmm. operation, you know, all custom to that. So like our back office technology is all custom, right? So everything ties together and it suits us in a way that, you know, if we went with a, just a third party provider, it probably wouldn't work as well. Very cool. Yeah. We'll definitely have to get that picture from you so we can posted somewhere to show people because that's yeah a really fun story of starting out. Yeah. What do you see for new people starting out building their stores and all that? What is some advice that you give them or best practices or things that you did that you're like, don't do that. That actually worked out really bad. <laughs> so uh, this probably goes back to your first question about, you know, the two businesses that we had before. Mm-hmm. We made some classic mistakes, right? Which is, I think the big one is like you build the whole thing and you spend like a year building it. And then you think that one day you're going to open and people are just going to come in, right? Yeah. Then you start thinking, hey, like, you know, maybe we just keep tweaking the product and eventually people will come, right? Really, all you're doing is staying busy mm-hmm. because if the demand is not there, it's not like suddenly going to show up unless like, you know, the world changes or whatever, right? And you just have to be at the right, at the right place at the right time. So it's prove out the demand first. And then when the demand is there, you can take your time with the product, And so it's like, you don't want to be in a place where you're convincing yourself that the reason you're not succeeding is because the product's just not quite right. Mm -hmm. If there's a real need for it, you can come out with something that's pretty minimal and just addresses the core need. And it doesn't even have to like run perfectly and be totally ironed out. And that'll give you enough signal that there's something there that people want. And then you can find it down the road and, you know, keep expanding your market to, hey, well, this is not just now the early adopters, but this is now more mass market and and so on and so forth, right? Because the early folks, they want your service, whatever it is so much that they're going to put up a little bit with you in the early days of like not having it all totally together. Mm -hmm. And so you got to prove out the, uh, the demand first before you totally refine the product. And what about when it comes to technology? How do you think about, like, it sounds like you guys did a lot of just in-house everything in-house logistics in-house you know what would you tell someone right now like should they try and build things in-house or yeah what are your thoughts on that it's easier now to build anything in-house than it used to be right Mm -hmm. back then it was actually a little more difficult because 
you know, a lot of the frameworks that are being used today were really fresh back then, right? So people, you know, weren't learning it in school. They had to teach themselves. They weren't, you know, the coding boot camps back then either. And so, you know, engineers were still a little bit hard to come by. Now resources are out there and everything. We were lucky because we did our own coding and, you know, the first versions of the site, uh, it was Ian Steven, our, our, our CTO, mm-hmm. more him than, than me, but, you know, we built the early versions of that. And we didn't hire engineers for a long time. We probably should hire engineers a little bit earlier than we did, but mm-hmm. you know, we got by it with just two folks building stuff, right? But you also learn a lot, you know, and you are kind of like more intimate with the product even today, just because we have that history with it. Yep. And I think one of the things that's really important to us early on was the data ownership. We don't want to have like all these different things talking to each other and not have a clear picture of what's going on, mm-hmm. right? We don't want any black boxes. You know, there's things that if we don't have access to all the data, then we can cut that service and we're going to build it ourselves. Got it. Very cool. Yeah. Great advice. So with a couple minutes left, yeah. we're going to move on to, it's called the lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is when I shoot a question over your way and you have a minute or less to say the first answer that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. We'll start with the easy ones first and then we'll end with the harder one. Sound good? Yeah. All right. What's up next for dinner? Uh, leftover Chinese food. Some more. <laughs> Yum. What's up next that you're buying from Touch of Modern? What am I buying next? Well, I have to see what comes up next. It changes every day. So I don't know yet. All right. Well, what did you just buy recently or what's your most recent purchase? My most recent purchase was, funny enough, it is a cast iron rice pot from Le Creuset. Okay. Have you tried it out yet? Uh, no, it hasn't gotten here yet. Uh, okay. This is very recent. This was probably a couple of days ago. Cool. What's up next on Netflix or Hulu Q? I actually don't have either. I don't even own any TV. Uh, I don't watch a whole lot of stuff, actually. Okay. Hey, that's an answer. Yeah. What's up next uh, in your travel destinations after the environment calms down a bit? Mm. Um, I think an easy one from California would be Hawaii. I like to go there to relax and it's a relatively short trip. So I like to go there. Yeah. What's your favorite island or have you been? Yeah, I've, uh, I go to Oahu fairly frequently. I really like Kauai. I've been there once uh, yep. to do uh, a hike. Yeah, that's my favorite island with all the waterfalls there and the crazy hikes that... To the weeping walls? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to go back though. We were only there for a couple of days and I feel like there's so many different hikes and waterfalls and just things to see there. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like a jungle. It's awesome. <laughs> On to the hard question. What's up next for e-commerce pros? E-commerce pros? Hmm. Man, what's next for the pros? I think, I mean, it's going to be adapting to the changes in customer behavior that are going to come out of this, whatever that is. Got it. Hey, that's an answer. All right, Jerry. Well, this has been a fun interview. Um, For everyone who hasn't gone and checked out Touch of Modern, you should. It has really fun products on there. And yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.
thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.